0: Welcome to a special episode of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We hit pause today on our in depth coverage of the several increasing legal perils for Donald Trump and the rest of the relentless tumultuous news for a periodic in depth look at the economic landscape. It's a very timely juncture for it. Two critical reports, one on prices and one on jobs, have just issued, together demonstrating cooling inflation and record low unemployment and seeming to suggest that the nation may dodge a widely predicted recession. But of course there remain many naysayers, not to mention millions of ordinary consumers who doubt whether we are out of the woods and continue to be queasy about inflation rates and prices in the supermarkets. To analyze the state of play of the economy and ferret out the basic disagreements among commentators about where things stand and where they're headed, we welcome a remarkable trio of some of the country's sharpest analysts of the economic scene and its interrelationship with our royal politics. And they are Dean Baker, the co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, which is a think tank that produces economic research on U.S. national affairs that he co-founded in 1999. You can find his writing at his blog, Beat the Press, as well as many major publications. He has authored many economic books, including Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. This is his first appearance on Talking Feds. Dean, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Paul Krugman, a New York Times opinion columnist where he's been writing about economics since the year 2000. He is also a distinguished professor in the Graduate Center for Economics at the City University of New York as well as Professor Emeritus at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, where he may or may not remember that we briefly overlapped. In 2008, he won the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences for his contributions to the new trade theory and new economic geography. He has authored or edited 27 three-cubed books and more than 200 papers in professional journals. Paul, thank you so much for coming back to Talking Feds.
1: Good to be on.
0: And finally, Stephanie Rule, a senior business analyst at NBC News and the host of 11th Hour on MSNBC, which airs weekdays at 11 p.m. and where I've been fortunate enough to be her guest regularly. She previously was managing editor and anchor for Bloomberg Television and editor-at-large For Bloomberg News. And before that, she spent 14 years in the finance industry at Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank. She's also active in women's leadership development and founded the Corporate Investment Women's Network and co-chairs Women on Wall Street. Stephanie Rule, always a pleasure to welcome you. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks for having me. All right.
0: So always tough sledding for me, but we have a solid anchor to ground this discussion. In the just released CPI report that shows cooling inflation, 5% annual growth down from 6% last month. And combine that with the recent job report showing slowed growth in new jobs and a 0.1% drop in unemployment to 3.5%. And you have what Paul has termed immaculate disinflation, that is inflation falling without any rise in unemployment. So just basically to ground the discussion and move on, it certainly sounds as if the economy is threading the needle very impressively. Do we have three thumbs way up on the recent performance of the economy, or does any of you have concerns that the numbers don't reveal? very happy
3: with where we stand right now. I mean, the question is, where are we going? But it's, it's very hard to be unhappy about 3.5% unemployment, inflation coming down. A lot of things in the economy just look really good right now. But you do have to be worried the fallout from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. And we probably haven't felt the full effects of the rate hikes to date. So I am worried about where it's going. But right now, it's hard to be unhappy about where things sit.
0: I mean, I think you called it a Passover miracle. So both you and Paul, anyway, in pretty high praise. Stephanie, you've got a Cheshire Cat smile here, I think. Are you a a naysayer?
2: No, not at all. I agree with Dean. I just think it's a complicated question. We're a country of 330 million people. And when we answer this question definitively, yes or no, you know you're going to infuriate a portion of people watching, right? It's a complicated economy. And the impact of COVID the rich got rich, the poor got poorer. But we do have a very, very strong labor picture. And the fact that inflation is coming down, I mean, that's fantastic. Can you say it's smooth sailing going forward? Absolutely not. The banking collapse of SVB and the situation that other smaller banks are dealing with is certainly concerning. It's a crisis of confidence. My alma mater, Deutsche Bank, is not out of the water, but we're nowhere near where we were with the underlying problems we saw in 2008. So I do concur. I think we're in a good position, but we've always got to be careful saying that because as soon as you say it out loud and something happens, people are going, see, you got it all wrong. It's not that you got it all wrong. It's complicated.
1: Yeah, can I be devil's advocate against myself here, which is to say that, look, we are in crazy times. And if you have complete trust in any of the numbers, you're probably not paying attention. A lot of us have had feel like the statistical agencies are messing with our heads. I, mean, I, I was all pretty enthused about the wage numbers a few months ago and then god damn it the BLS changed the seasonal adjustment factors and the story seemed to change and now it seems to be back where it was so it's not as if we are 100% certain that inflation is on a glide path to acceptable levels i think the preponderance of the evidence points that way but anyone who you know is say okay those are the numbers that's for sure you're just asking for the gods to punish you there
3: well, i've had to eat my words more than once but i will say i think i'll go through preponderance of evidence but i think a very large preponderance because again we're looking at the inflation data you know one of the things i think we all could feel pretty comfortable on because it comes from all these different sources is that rental inflation is going to slow sharply i mean we have yeah. the private indexes of marketed units they all show the same thing we don't know exactly the timing we don't know fully how much But clearly, that's going to slow sharply, presumably to pre-pandemic rates, possibly even lower. The evidence on wage growth, again, we can look at the ECI. We can look at the average hourly earnings. Clearly, wage growth has slowed hugely. Are we at a level that is consistent with 2% inflation? Arguable. Clearly, we're close. So those are really big factors. And then also, we got the producer price index this morning minus five-tenths of a percent for the month, and that's been a general trend. Now, I know that's driven by unusual factors, food and energy, but even if you look at services, that's down by three-tenths. So there's a lot of evidence inflation has slowed sharply, whether we're at 2% or not, I think perfectly reasonable to argue that. Clearly, I think we could look at a situation where later this year we're going to be under 3 is that okay? Again, we could argue that, but I think things are going in the right direction. I feel, you know, again, maybe we'll see some crazy revisions, but I think we have enough evidence pointing in the same direction. We could say that.
0: So, point really well taken. I just want to be clear of what I meant to ask, which was not to tag you each with a pan glossy and a rosy picture of going forward. But just there's some disagreement. If you read the some of the commentators on the last two reports, there's some, well, you know, maybe, maybe not in terms of where we are now. So the very set of reports that Paul, I think you called awesome, I just mean to say is the very snapshot we're at quite noteworthy. And I'm struck, hadn't thought of this before, but, you know, as a legal guy, I'm always asked these similar questions and to sort of pontificate with certainty. And Paul's invocation of preponderance of evidence, we're in the same business in a sense where you have to give judgment based on risk. And I'm not trying to remove that from the equation.
2: But Harry, it's also a tale of two economies in that. Yes, go ahead. One of the things we can't forget is consumer demand remains very high. And that will keep prices high. We can all sit here and complain about the price uh, of goods, the price of services. But one of the problems is a portion of our economy, specifically people with white collar jobs, are willing to pay these higher prices. And so that is exceptionally difficult for people further down the economic scale who are suffering. But, you know, we could all say, I just went to a pizzeria and I can't believe that they're now charging $22 a pizza but people are still purchasing those pizzas at $22 a pop. And so those businesses aren't going to lower their prices. And that's the same thing that we're seeing in the hotel industry and other travel businesses. You have got a portion of our economy that are willing to pay it, and they can, and that does keep prices high. And actually, let me augment that
0: and ask for Dean and Paul's Thoughts, Because, again, all these stories, they do contrast somewhat with the immediate reactions of Dean and Paul because they're always like, well, here are the numbers. But here's Jane from Minneapolis who says, boy, milk's still expensive. So it's then sort of subdivided and you have what seems to me always this crazy wild card of consumer sense of the economy. But it's fair to say, isn't it, that the subjective consumer sense of the state of inflation in particular and the state of the economy in general is divorced from the kinds of rosy numbers that you have spouted in the last five minutes. So what is that, Augur? That's a danger in and of itself, yes?
3: Well, I'm going to make a couple of points on that. First off, I mean, in terms of the tail of the two economies, the fastest wage growth has been at the bottom end. So restaurant workers have seen pay increases of more than 20 percent. Now, that's nominal. So when we adjust for inflation, it's less than that. But still, they've had really good wage growth. There's been great work by Arun Dubey and David Otter that documented very well that the fastest wage growth has been bottom quintile. It's far outpaced inflation. So that, that's what the
1: data show.
0: And the unemployment gap as well, right? It's really reduced between black and white Americans, for example. Yeah. That just
1: blows me away. Back when Reagan was said it was morning in America, it was a nine percentage point gap. It's now 1.8. It's unbelievable how much that, that has converged.
3: Yeah. Lowest black unemployment ever. I am reluctant to celebrate 5% black unemployment, but we've never seen it that low. But when we talk about what people see, I mean, people buy food, you know, they go to the grocery store every week, and food prices have outpaced the overall rate of inflation. Now, that's been reversed, or I shouldn't say reversed, partially reversed. They fell in March. Will that continue? My guess is it will, because we look at the underlying prices, things like wheat, you know, the raw materials, those have been going down. So that I think will be a good story. But I understand, you know, people are paying more at the grocery store. That's something they see every week. They don't buy a car every week. Most of the items we have in the consumer price index, they're not buying every week. So I can understand how people have that perception. I'll also point out, and I beat up on the media a lot, a lot of the reporting has been particularly, I remember when gas prices were going up, we we're having stories, oh, people are paying so much more for gas. And obviously, that's a big deal, but that's not the only thing people buy.
0: Yeah. I mean, now they're not, and journalists are poo pooing it as if, oh, you know, that's already incorporated in people's assessments. Yeah. So, anyhow,
3: again, I know people see different things in their consumption baskets, and a lot of people clearly are hurting. That's always a story. I just don't think that it's more today than it would have been, say, in two nineteen.
1: Actually, this is the kind that gets me in trouble, but I think that perceptions about inflation, there's kind of a parallel with crime. Great point. We had an epic decline in crime between roughly uh, the late 90s and bottoming out in, the, in 2016, 20 thereabouts. Epic, just incredible, declining crime. And polls said every year through that period, people said crime was increasing. All through this absolutely transformation of the violent crime landscape. The biggest drop in New York City, you went from you know, more than 2,000 to 300 murders a year. And all through all of that, people kept on saying crime is getting worse. And there's something people have in mind saying that people have reasons to complain, but they do. you do get a kind of a narrative It's that's partially fed by the media, but also just people get into a mood and people are sour about the economy, even when a lot of things are going right.
0: Boy, is that a great point. Again, I, I actually have a touchstone to my own experience, and people feel it so viscerally. The day this podcast drops, you have Jim Jordan going to New York to hold a field hearing, as it were, that attacks, as if this were relevant, the indictment of Trump by purported high figures of crime in New York, which in fact don't hold up, as you said. But people feel crime viscerally, and i and. uh, Presumably they feel the price of of milk as well viscerally.
2: I just love that you brought that point up. It's just so media fueled because I live here in New York City, I don't feel an extraordinary increase in threat of crime, but I assure you, my suburban Fox News watching parents are panicked 24 hours a day that my children will be slashed on their way to school. And when they see my children, they give them detailed instructions of what to do when a mugger approaches them on the street. And my kids are going, I'm sorry, the school that I walk to every day and home from. So it's easy to panic people about crime and the economy. And it's what the grievance media does. And it's
0: really the effect of person on the street. There's something to be said for it, but person on the street reports where you know you identify with it and you're often running. Let me ask though, because this is really about as I understand it, a gradual and hopefully continuing decline in inflation. We can argue where it's at now, Dean, you suggested three or percent, even two percent. But the promising news has something to do with both the wage growth and the relatively slow. Job growth. Yes. Let me take that latter factor. I know I've just thrown a lot into the, the mix here, but why does it matter the relatively slow job growth in comparison, at least to the prior months in the broader evaluation of the economy? How does that figure into the big picture?
3: Well, I think we all would agree that there's some limit to the rate at which we could add jobs, given that we're at three and a half percent unemployment. I mean, if we were still at six and a half, seven percent unemployment, there'd be a lot of unemployed workers that could be hired. But at three and a half percent, there aren't that many. Now, we could always pull more people into the labor market. and We seem to be doing that. And that's a great thing. But still, we have this crazy number in January. It sure surprised me, 511,000 new jobs. You can't keep that up for month after month after month.
0: You can't keep that up and and keep inflation at bay. Is that what you mean?
3: Exactly. So understandably, the Fed and just about everyone, even I, I'll say, was kind of freaked out. On the one hand, it's great to see so many more jobs. On the other hand, you go, okay, but we can't continue that. So seeing slower job growth in March was a good thing. And as you know, I and others have pointed out, if you actually look at hours work, because there's been some reduction in the length of the average work week, that actually fell slightly in March. Now, those numbers are erratic. You know, Paul is talking about we don't even know the present. Yeah. So that could be revised. We may have to tell a different story about March when we get the April data. But for now, at least, that actually showed that hours work fell. And in fact, for the last several months, the index of aggregate hours has grown very slowly. So the idea that I think many of us would look to is we want to see job growth, we want to see the unemployment rate stay low, but it has to be in some bounds because otherwise we will really have a big problem with inflation. So slower job growth, slower hours growth, to my view, that's a good thing.
2: And that's hard to get people to understand. Yeah. So when you start to see job growth slow and you're going, great, the Fed's efforts to slow inflation are working, but when the news comes out and, and things come in a little lower, people are like, oh my God, this is, and, and trying to slowly kind of walk through that complicated thing is uh, easier said than done.
1: We are definitely in the world of topsy-turvy here where good news is bad news and, and vice versa. And so something else I think is worth pointing out is that it's not just that, you know, the rate of job growth slowed a bit. The labor supply, there's a lot of good news on that front. Just a few months we were talking ago, we were talking about how people had retired in the face of the pandemic and weren't coming back. And now labor force participation in fifty five to sixty-four is right back at pre COVID levels. And I have a particular By the time this is circulated, you'll have seen me have have written something about it. But one of the untold stories about what's going right with the American economy right now is that immigration is back. We had net immigration of a million people in 2022, highest level since 2017. And immigrants are overwhelmingly working age adults. So we're getting a big bump to labor supply out of immigration, which I think You know, obviously, (laughs) if you're a Fox News viewer, you don't think that's a great thing. But uh, Stephanie and I are both here in New York City, which is 36 percent foreign born. And and I've got family in Queens, which is 47 percent foreign born. And strange to say, they're not hell holes.
0: Right. And thank you know, really, thank God for foreign uh, workers. I'm not sure what you're referring to, Bob, because you'd already written a piece that I really, that it was the thing that oriented me most for this discussion, the meaning of an awesome employment report. So, and I wanted to double back on that and Stephanie's point about the relatively fast emergence from the trough as compared with 2008. So let me put it this way. Are we now, wherever we're going, does it feel as if the sort of ill effects of COVID have been beaten back. I mean, there's some important benchmarks that have returned to early 2020 levels. Is that a sort of tangible achievement where we can say we're out of that particular woods, or would that be premature?
3: I would say we could say we're out of it. I mean, it's it's kind of funny. Uh, I don't know if it's appropriate to make comparisons with Donald Trump, but here's the guy running around best economy ever, Biden does sort of take credit, but I mean, if you just imagine the shoe on the other foot, suppose that you had Donald Trump in the White House and we had this sort of economy, can you imagine how he'd be growing about it? So obviously you don't get over everything with COVID. I mean, people died, people have long COVID. I mean, so you can't say, Oh, it's all behind us that you know we could forget about, it. but from an economic standpoint. We really have done a remarkable job in getting the economy back on its feet, and you know if all he could say was, "Oh, we have this bout of inflation," that seems a really small price to pay
2: Dean brings up such a good point because it's emotional how people feel about the economy even more than it is tangible and if there's one thing you could say Donald Trump does, he sells the shit out of stuff, whether it's true or not, and it always blows my mind when you talk about how the average American feels about the economy with Democrats in office or Republicans in office, because when the facts bear out, you have a steadier, stronger economy with Democrats in office. But the average person would never know that, given how Republicans outsell them. And I think that the president could do a better or more aggressive job selling all these economic wins. Sometimes I feel like this is a a crude way to put it, but unless every kid in America has a cupcake, Democrats are unwilling to sing happy birthday. And the economy (laughs) is a win and they should run that victory lap. And it's not to say that there aren't people left out. There certainly are. But if Democrats don't, take that win, and start to ride with it, then they will lose power. And so many of those services that our most economically vulnerable Americans are dependent on, they will lose out on. And so it's like, come on, guys, stand up and wave the flag. You did a really good job.
3: Yeah, I've been haranguing the people I know in the administration saying, you got to brag more. You know, I never thought I'd be in a situation where I'm doing that because people know me, I tend to be more of a naysayer. But you know, I, I think they really have to take credit.
2: Wait, it's funny that you say that about A few months ago, I actually said to someone in the White House, I was going through, I'm like, you have all these wins. And I ticked through it. And the last one was the markets, was the stock market. And the person said to me, no, 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 no. Like, that's not our brand. We're not going to boast about that. And again, that's a total misconception. The market isn't just a bunch of hedge fund guys sitting in apartments on Fifth Avenue. The market is owned by firefighters and teachers. It's pension funds. It's retirement funds. Think about all the people out there checking their 401ks and panicked. So I do think while the economy and the market are two different things, that's also something that Democrats shouldn't be repelled by acknowledging.
0: This is something I think Clinton did particularly well, but Democrats since have failed at. And and to my mind, Stephanie, you really put your finger on it with the notion of everyone's got to get a cupcake, no child left behind, because the culture of Democrats is so strong for identifying with it could be 10%, it could be 1% who remain uh, left behind. But of course, going from 10% to 1% is huge, but the Democrats have so many voices in their ears, including haranguing the White House daily about don't make it seem too rosy because you're insulting, in a sense, our brand almost. Let me ask you this, because you you brought up first, Stephanie. I think there's some difference of opinion about whether the recent bank issues. So you you seem to see them as a pretty big factor in the overall landscape, at least going forward. I've read other accounts that make them seem isolated, explainable, and not much of an impact on the overall economy. So what are the recent bank failures contribution to where we stand today?
1: Anybody? I'll be very agnostic on it. Sorry, Paul, you should go ahead. I'm very agnostic too. I think this this is actually hard stuff. This is not 1931 with everybody rushing to hide their money under the mattress. For the most part, this is people reallocating funds away from smaller regional banks, to some extent into big banks, to some extent, a large extent apparently into money market funds. And sort of the overall volume of credit in the economy, it's not clear that that's going to be affected, but different institutions lend to different people. And so the question is, if you pull money out of regional bank and put it in a money market fund, which probably would be happening even without the the crisis because the interest spread is so large now, does that end up cutting off credit to small businesses that depend upon those regional banks? It must be some of that. And if you ask the question, how big a deal is that? The answer is, I haven't the faintest idea
3: along those lines, uh, there was a survey of the National Federation of Independent Businesses, which is businesses less than 500 employees. They came out with their survey uh, this week, and I think it was 42% of businesses said that access to credit was a major problem. And that's far and away the highest since the immediate aftermath of the Great Recession. So that would suggest that they're having trouble getting credit. But I guess my concern is It's not so much, is it this week? Is it next week? Does this persist for six months? So if a business was hoping to get a loan in March and then things ease up come April or May, that's not going to have a big economic impact. But if that situation remains in place for three or six months, we will notice that.
2: Put Silicon Valley Bank and Signature off to the side. It's about cost of capital. And the average viewer or listener, like their eyes glaze over and they're like, I'm sorry, what? We've become addicted for so long to just the cheapest of the cheap credit, zero interest rates when we didn't need interest rates to be so low, where everyone was sort of drunk at the punch bowl, expecting central bankers to all stay in line. Life gets a whole lot more expensive for individuals, for small businesses, and for big businesses when rates go up. And we're experiencing what that's like for people, right? When you talk about it in the abstract, oh, rates are up, people are like, I'm sorry, what? Stuff costs the same, doesn't it? And then suddenly you're looking at your credit card bills. You're trying to get a mortgage. You're trying to deal with payroll and suddenly what your costs are, and they get a lot more expensive. And so there's a lag in the impact of when rates go up, suddenly all of our cost of capital goes up. And it's something that a lot of people stopped thinking about when rates were so low for so long.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So it's less the failures of those to relatively small banks and more, maybe the reaction of the big banks or even more significantly, the effects of the rises from the Fed. I'm sorry, did I interrupt you, Dean?
3: Yeah, just a small point. When the businesses in that survey, the National Federation of Independent Business, say that lack of access to capital is a problem, we don't know whether the issue is, as Stephanie said, that they have to pay more for it or they're going to the bank and the bank says no. So it could be both. We don't know.
1: Yeah. And if I can add, I mean, we can have a a debate about whether a low interest rate policy actually did make sense. And there were a lot of reasons for it. But one thing that is really, I think, important is that because basically nothing happened to rates for 15 years, we have no benchmark. We don't know what a rise in rates does. You don't know. I don't know. The Fed doesn't know. And I think that's what's really critical. The Fed is trying to, you know, cool off the economy, slow down inflation without any good idea of what the size of the effects are. It's twiddling the dials, but everything operates with a lag. And I once said that the Fed is trying to operate heavy machinery in a dark basement while wearing mittens. I mean, they just (laughs) don't know what they're doing, not because they're stupid, but because we haven't gone through anything like this for a long, long time.
0: Well, let's focus more on the Fed. It does feel like, isn't the thrust of what we were saying at the top, that they may be Mr. Magoo driving heavy machinery, but they seem to be navigating decently to date. But, I, you know, Dean, I think you've suggested that some of the numbers would argue in favor of stopping increases now. And others are suggesting, you know, given the 2% goal or whatever that they can be expected at least to still keep the foot kind of halfway on the gas. I just wonder what your thoughts are. Obviously, we can't predict, but where you see the Fed being and does it kind of diverge from where commissioners uh, Rule Baker and Krugman might be?
3: Well, they acted very aggressively in raising rates. And on on the one hand, I understood that Powell had to reestablish his reputation as an inflation fighter. And he repeatedly appealed to the ghost of Paul Volcker that, you know, he's serious. And, you know, he convinced, I think everyone sure convinced me, the three-quarter percentage point, those are big hikes. You know, you don't typically see that. And Paul's saying we haven't seen uh, any hikes, any series of hikes, really, uh, since 06, 07. But hikes like that, you really do have to go back to Paul Volcker. It's 40 years now. So those have a big impact. And that was much more aggressive than I would like to see. seen. But he did what he did. And I would really hope that he'd look at the impact on the economy and say, it's time to pause. We're not going to get another major report. I mean, we'll get retail sales. We'll get some other things. So I shouldn't say they're not major. But we aren't going to get another CPI. We aren't going to get another jobs report before the next Fed meeting. So I would hope based on the slower inflation and the the March CPI, the slower job and wage growth and the the March employment report, that they would pause. And again, I understand he's got to maintain, you know, I'm concerned about inflation 2%. I understand that, but I would hope he would pause and then, you know, they'll have more data by the next meeting. But it seems to me the wisest path at this point, particularly given the turmoil in the financial sector, would be to just say we're going to wait for now.
0: I hadn't realized that the binder that they're going to get, you can pretty well put it together already.
1: Employment Cost Index, yeah, ECI. ECI is, I think, comes before the meeting, and that's kind of a big one because there's a drives me crazy. I mean, I understand why, but we're we're all like you know ancient Roman priests fiddling with the entrails of, of sacrifices, trying to augur the future here with the inflation stuff. But one question, Stephanie, is are you going to be able
0: to match that metaphor? I'm not sure. No, <laughs> yeah.
1: the wage number from the jobs report was really encouraging, but how much was that warped by composition? Was that because a lot of low paid workers were being rehired and I can find you people who will say that the composition effect is anywhere from zero to immense and they're all, none of them is obviously stupid. And the ECI will help clarify. I think that's the last thing. The other stuff is not going to matter. But whatever the ECI report, not that it, that's a super reliable number either, but that's probably the last one that will go into the, the next decision.
2: I just say inflation is a problem without a doubt. But given how much more fragile things have become in the financial sector, I think we'll most likely get at least a short term pause out of the Fed. Or maybe I'm projecting because that's what I'd hope for.
1: Well, it's interesting. And we're down actually at the level where, where we start to worry about individual people. And great great to see Lyle Greenard promoted to become the top economist in the administration. But actually, right now, I wish he were at the Fed. You know, <laughs> But on the other hand, Austin Goolsbee is making sense. So I don't know.
0: This is a point you've been making since 2000, you know, that at the end of the day, we're actually talking about people. I want to pick up on the point you just made, something about fragility, something that confuses me. And maybe it's just because it's inherent or maybe it's my layperson's lack of full understanding. But the kind of, you know, surgical precision we look to from the Fed is because it feels like if you steer 1%, 2% off course unknowingly, boom, you're looking at recession. In other words, you might think that the teeny miscalculations lead to teeny bad misadjustments in the economy, but it feels as if on top of everything else, You can do better with this, both Stephanie and Paul Dean. but we're juggling kind of nitroglycerin. So let me zero in in particular on the prospect of a recession because it was widely predicted for late last year. It's still being held off. Some predict we're out of the woods. Uh, Others that adversity is right around the corner, to change a, a phrase. Do you have an opinion, and am I right about this general point that the job is incredibly hard and hard to predict because a small miscalculation can have gross consequences. You know,
3: the recession story, I've been the optimist. I guess I'll still be the optimist. I don't see a recession in the cards. But one of the reasons is I don't see how we can have a traditional recession. I'll recount, I remember back in uh, February of 2008, I was debating someone who argued that we couldn't have a traditional recession because manufacturing and construction are the two most cyclical sectors of course and they're just too small a share of the workforce and i argued strongly the other way because i'm saying housing markets collapsing we will see a big fall in construction <laughs> employment and also there will be a secondary hit to manufacturing which again obviously proved to be true but i think that basic point actually that construction and manufacturing are not that large a share of the workforce. I think that is true now. And we took a big hit to construction employment in in 2008, 2009, because it had become so bloated. But the construction sector didn't become particularly bloated. I mean, we did see an expansion in housing construction, which is great. We need that. But it's not collapsing. It's not collapsing like it did in 2007, 2008, and 2009. So we're not going to see anywhere close to that same fall off. And as far as manufacturing, again, it's a much smaller share of total employment. The typical story we tell is, of course, that interest rate hikes from the Fed push up the value of the dollar and crowd out our our net exports. Well, the dollar's actually been falling in the last six months. So I, I don't see the basis for that. So we can look to the tech sector. Obviously, that is losing some jobs. But is that enough to give us a recession I don't see that. So we could have some horrible things happen. Maybe credit will completely freeze up and people stop buying things and we'll see mass layoffs across the economy. That's not impossible, but I just don't see that as the most likely scenario.
2: Even the tech layoffs that we've already seen that sort of panic people, we forget. The lion's share of those companies were so massively overhiring in the last decade There's some cushion there. It's not like you're seeing these layoffs that are going to decimate a whole sector. Just think about some of those big companies, the amount of hire. It was like their doors were wide open, the barn door was open, and they've been on a hiring spree for years and years.
3: And the unemployment in that sector is still almost zero. So
1: Yeah, the fact of the matter is that they're very visible layoffs. But if you try and see them in any kind of aggregate numbers, they... They just disappear. They just happen to be people that we know and people who talk to the media, but they're not actually at all representative of what's happening in the workforce. But the truth is, you know, I think the IMF did a systematic study of the ability of economists to forecast recessions a few years back, and the result was zero. The profession has absolutely no ability to forecast recessions. So God knows.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, there you have it on that one. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages.
4: Thanks, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we start with two of our absolute favorite things, dessert and wine, and combine them into one delicious topic dessert wines. What are they exactly, and how are they made? Grab a fork and a glass, and let's dig into this sweet subject matter. Dessert wines are just as you'd hope they be, sweet wines that are typically served after a meal. Sometimes they're served with a dessert, and sometimes they're served as dessert. And then there are those times in between. The smoothness and lack of acidity make for a pleasant and easygoing taste that pairs perfectly with relaxation. I reach for dessert wines when I'm craving something sweet to enjoy, while unwinding in the evening, or after a big meal. To make a sweet dessert wine, the fermentation process is halted just prior to the yeast converting all the sugar to alcohol. Interrupting the fermentation ensures that there is sugar remaining in the wine, which gives us that sweetness we crave. But the amount of sweetness varies from wine to wine, and there's no shortage of options. Just pop into Total Wine & More and you'll see many, many varieties from ports to ice wines to Sauternes and to Hungarian tukai. Dessert wines come in both still and sparkling too. They're also made from both red and white grapes and they can be served chilled in a small glass or room temperature, proving that really, when it comes to dessert wines, anything goes. Hungry? Thirsty? Maybe a little of both? Stop into your local Total Wine to check out our large selection of dessert wines, and feel free to chat with a helpful guide for a recommendation. Cheers!
0: Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. It seems like everything in law and politics and I you know I want to move more toward the interplay with sort of the conventional political scene soon but it feels like this is just a weird extreme funky time I think often of what my kids are going to tell their grandkids about covid and trump and the like so maybe it only stands to reason that it's also weird and extreme as economics goes as well i mean you said things are topsy turvy these days and what's up is down do you think there's something particular that sounds in your world in the economics realm that kind of bleeds in from the crazy ass you know world we're in in every other aspect and that makes the sometimes dry, if always imprecise world of economics, more either challenging or up in the air or crazy.
2: Crazy ass is the most important word in what you just said. And anyone right now who's 100% sure about where we are and where we're going, you gotta be kidding me. Nobody predicted (laughs) COVID. Nobody predicted what COVID would do to our lives, to education, to our outlook. I mean, I'm sitting here right now at 30 Rock, And I might as well be buck naked in my office because there's absolutely no one as far as the eye can see. If it were three (laughs) years ago, this newsroom would be packed with people. When we're talking about the economy, when we're talking about productivity, things are still so complicated and far be it from me to say, oh, I know how this is going to play out. I mean, please, no one does. Talk to any Fortune 500 CEO out there. Talk to any small business owner. We have all just gone through uncharted waters and we're going to for the foreseeable future.
3: Yeah, you know, the, the issue of work from home, I think, is enormous and hugely underappreciated. One of the things when we talk about people's circumstances, Nick Bloom at Stanford estimates 25 to 30 percent of work days are now remote work, which is incredible. People are saving thousands of dollars a year on commuting costs, hundreds of hours of commuting time. That's a massive change for large numbers of people. I know that tends to be the more educated, better off segment of the workforce, but that's not one percent. That's a lot of people. And, you know, the full implications of that, I think it's very hard to figure out. I mean, people realize, oh, I don't have to be in New York City, not to knock New York City, great place. But, you know, I could be like I am across the country. And you're going to see, I think, a lot more people migrate from big cities, which is a mixed story. Again, I mean, it's good to have concentrations of people like that. What happens to the office buildings? Again, that's a huge issue. I mean, we have all these vacant office buildings, and to my view, the best thing is convert them to residential. I understand there are issues there. That requires one of the things: zoning changes. Can you have a windowless bedroom? I don't say there's simple answers to them, but how that turns out? Can we successfully convert large amounts of vacant office space to residential? If the answer to that's yes, then we have a hugely different story than one where they sit as empty husks in the middle of all our major cities.
0: Yeah, I mean, what both of you have said begins in something other than jobs reports, interest rate hike, real issues in the world that people understand, but comes around now to your world in significant ways. So is this a
1: topsy-turvy time to be an economist? Oh, sure. First of all, COVID itself and its impacts, and then the work from home was probably coming. The technology has been there, but it really got jump-started. We really had a infant industry protection for the work from home industry because of COVID, and it looks like a permanent shift. And that changes lots of things. It, in ways, that are kind of weird. Actually, one of the funny things is that judging from what's happening to the rental market, lots of people want, still want to live in New York. Certainly, they would want to live in Manhattan. They just don't want to go to the office down on Wall Street. So, <laughs> so I'm sitting here on the Upper West Side and the building is full and Riverside Park is full of people, but nobody is going down to the financial district. So First of all, COVID screws up a lot of the ways that we try to track the economy. My complaint, I wish the media would just stop reporting on core inflation. Core inflation was an attempt to extract the signal from the noise that worked in a time when really crazy stuff only happened to food and energy markets. But in a time when crazy stuff happens to the market for used cars, when crazy stuff happens to apartment rents because of work from home, forty percent of of core inflation is shelter costs, which we know are lagging well over a year behind market conditions in the housing market. So, it's become much much harder to figure out what's happening. And I don't know if anybody wants, else wants to talk about the you know sort of the COVID related dislocation of norms. But I think you do want to say that this all also takes place against the background of increasingly insane politics. And so one of the reasons that we can't get agreement on anything is that there are people who are just living in completely different intellectual universes now. And uh, uh, it's just not even possible to have conversations with a lot of people.
0: You know, it's a perfect segue to where I did want to spend some time here, you know, a little less of the um, nuts and bolts of the economic figures and more and how they're playing out in the political sphere. So, let me start with a straightforward question. I think it's been shown that there's only so much a presidential administration can do anyway to, you know, deeply affect economic trends. But do you see any significant relationship? Maybe this goes to the victory lapse that, Stephanie, you say the administration hasn't taken. But do you see any significant relationship between question one, where we started, that at least as of today, we're in a pretty impressive place, and the Biden administration initiatives, especially, I would say, the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act?
2: I think they have, but the challenge the White House has is selling that and convincing the American people they got some extraordinary legislation passed in the last two years. And now they're putting that money to work. They need to put that money to work and find a way to show that to the American people and get credit for it. And I'm not saying that's easy to do, but that's the challenge they have on hand. And if you look at the president's polling numbers, especially around the economy, I don't think they reflect the accomplishments he's had.
3: Yeah, I'd say that Very much so. You left out the original stimulus package, which, of course, you know, he took a lot of heat for $1.8 trillion. It was huge. And frankly, I think it was too much. But, you know, the point was he did the opposite of what Obama did. Obama was worried, you know, could he get more? We don't know the answer to that, but he was worried deficits, you know, he had to be cautious. And the result of that, of course, was this very, very slow recovery. Biden goes the other way. 1.8 trillion. Huge amount, no doubt about it. But to my view, paid off enormously because here we are, 3.5% unemployment. You know, We're back on trend growth path. So that was fantastic. We did pay a price in inflation. A lot of that we would have seen anyhow because, of course, the countries that didn't do a big stimulus also had big jumps in inflation. But yeah, I'm sure it added to inflation, no doubt about it. So that, I think he deserves enormous credit for. He took a big risk. He paid a big price politically. He hasn't got the benefit.
0: And he got an amazing political accomplishment getting it through with a razor thin.
3: And this is why, not that anyone cares what I said, but I wasn't going to make a point <laughs> of saying it was too large because I just assumed he's not going to get $1.8 He's going to, you know, <laughs> Mansions going to get in there. It never occurred to me. He got
0: $1.8
2: I never, ever thought he was going to get that much through. Ever in a billion years. I never, I don't think they thought it.
0: Well, Paul, you wrote about this at the time, but you're generally agreeing that he deserves one of many victory laps here, that they're not very well marketing?
1: Oh, yeah. And the biggest of them is the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the Holy Roman Empire of legislation. Neither Holy nor Roman nor an empire. Whatever the Inflation (laughs) Reduction Act was about, it wasn't about reducing inflation, but it was landmark climate legislation. And that one, I was absolutely sure was dead. Not a chance that was going to get past Joe Manchin. And he did it. And actually, it's it's looking as if it's probably even bigger than it seemed because it's mostly not specified outlays; It's mostly tax credits. And the actual amount of outlays depends on how many businesses take them up. And it's looking like take-up is actually running well above estimations. So this has turned out to be a huge climate bill. And it's just awesome. I don't know if you were there. Somewhere during the Obama years, there was a meeting at the White House of friendly economists. I was wearing my economist hat, uh, not my journalist hat. And President Obama said, I want to hear from you guys. Good things I can do. But he said, but let me start by saying, don't tell me I should spend a trillion dollars on infrastructure. I know that, but I can't. <laughs> but Biden did it. Yeah,
2: he did it. They really need, though, to find a way to get permitting reform rolling. Because if they don't, This thing is going to be stuck in the mud for so damn long.
1: I mean, one of the things that we're learning, actually, from activist policy is that it's probably a process of discovery. You discover where the bottlenecks are. And now, to some extent, people who are sort of vaguely on the political left become a big part of the problem. I've obviously picked sides in most of this stuff, but there's a reason why Texas is building more renewable energy than California is. And it's mostly the damn uh, problems of getting a permit to do anything in California.
3: Yeah, I just want to say one more thing for the inflation reduction. I watched the Super Bowl, and if you saw the commercials, all the car companies were 100% in on electric cars. And that, to my mind, is the biggest thing with the Inflation Reduction Act. Industry is totally on board with electric cars, clean energy. You can't turn that back.
2: And that's not companies being woke. This nonsense fallacy about woke companies versus not woke companies. You know what companies want to do? Make money. That's what they care about. They care about selling product. They care about their employees not quitting, and they want to make money. They give money to Democrats. They give money to Republicans. They give money to every possible organization that gives them the clearest path to not have regulators or lawmakers up in their grill. And this whole ridiculous notion that there are these activist-woke companies, for the most part, is nonsense.
0: I totally agree. I mean, and it's one thing that presidents actually can do is nudge culture in a way that then companies follow. We're short on time, but I really want to spend a few minutes on the current setting now for all this stuff, which is the debt ceiling standoff. Other people, including you, have, have talked about the apocalyptic stakes here. This almost seems like a rhetorical question, but how threatening is it to our economic standing? And even if we go to the brink and then there's some kind of resolution, would that itself, that brinksmanship, be damaging going forward?
2: I would just say what scares me the most, maybe the first time ever, you have got people in very, very powerful positions that either truly do not understand how the economy works, or category B, truly do not care. And I think that one-two punch is unprecedented, and that has me extraordinarily scared.
3: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'm very worried the same way. And again, you look at what the Republicans are saying. I know I'm being partisan here, but I'm sorry. It's the reality. I mean, Biden put a proposal on the table. He has his budget. I understand the Republicans hate it, but that's the way politics works, you put your proposal on the table and the Republicans come there with theirs and they fight things out or whatever, but they're just yelling and you can't work with that.
1: Yeah. And the scary thing is that, you know, in general, there's a lot of mysticism about the role of the dollar and all of that, but the U.S. Treasury bill is the asset in the world. It is everything. The whole world financial system runs off the inviolability of U.S. Treasury bills. And if the U.S. is no longer a reliable client, then God knows what happens. Now, I assume, I have zero inside information, I assume that if we actually get to the brink and market reactions aren't enough to bring Republicans around or anything, there are a bunch of possible workarounds issue bonds with infinite uh, maturity or uh, or bonds with a
0: the three trillion dollar coin or that kind of thing.
1: the platinum coin whatever and they may or may not be legal but god knows the democrats must have enough good lawyers to keep something like this tied up in the courts for years so they have to say we're not going to do any of that but if it, it push comes to shove i don't know whether i'm assuming or hoping that they will just find a way to, to say, forget it, we're going to ignore the death ceiling. But if they don't, if it really comes to this, it's incredible. I mean, the most incredible case of economic self-immolation by a major nation ever.
0: This has been, for me, a, an education in the interplay or the overlap between economics and law, because in fact, it's true, and we've talked about these on other episodes, there are some sophisticated maneuvers they can do, and maybe they're not right, but the question is, what do they do to the current status quo? Because the worry is that it gets so close that however it goes, we've sustained great damage. Wow, what a chock full episode. We end uh, normally with a question that you're supposed to answer in five words or fewer. And I'm going to choose a really crazy one that's impossible to answer in five words or fewer. And, uh, you know, it's unfair and Flip, but that's punditry for you. But I'm actually really interested in your five-word view, which is something that Paul wrote about earlier this year. Do you think the United States has too much debt?
3: We look great compared to Japan.
1: The answer is no. Okay. (laughs) I mean, if you want to follow up, it is, we look great compared to Japan. We look great compared to the UK for much of the past two centuries. It's just not an issue.
2: We're the cleanest, dirty shirt. Oh,
1: there we go. I like that.
0: I should really just retire now, but I'll just say people I respect say no. We are out of time in this special Talking Feds episode. Thank you so much to Paul, Dean and Stephanie. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, Please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube where we post daily video content breaking down legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. We are also now offering Patreon subscribers access to my LA Times op-eds. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McArdle, Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Ria Cohen-Gilbert, Emma Maynard, and Colena Tano. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of DeLito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.